This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. I'm thinking it's like the upfronts because Steve Carell's on stage, Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon. I know. We're watching all these headlines go by. Like, why are What? 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 Well, we're talking about the Apple event uh, out there on the West Coast. It is all about services. In fact, today is about services is how Apple CEO Cook introduced uh, that event at Apple headquarters. Lots of announcements. Let's get into it with Alistair Barr, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Also with us is Angelo Zeno. He is senior equity analyst over at CFRA Research on the phone in New York. Alistair kick it off. Uh, We're talking about lots of magazine subscriptions, a news service. What else? Yeah, I'm not a tech reporter today, actually. I'm a a media and entertainment reporter. That's great. Um, Yeah, so the news service uh, was kind of light on hard news sources. So the LA Times and... um, and the Wall Street Journal were the main ones there, but a lot of magazines. And then uh, actually kind of a surprise, there was actually a gaming subscription service announced too where you would, you'd you'd pay a monthly fee and then you get access to about 100 exclusive um, video games that you can play on your iPhone as well. Um, and then, yes, there was a credit card as well that Apple launched with Goldman Sachs, which um, doesn't have a lot of the fees that, that you normally get with, with a regular credit card. So, Angelo Zeno from CFRA, come on in here because Apple shares, they're down almost 2% uh, at this moment. One might expect if Apple's unveiling all this great new stuff and they've got all this star power and the CEO of Goldman that people would be more excited. Why aren't they? Well, um, you know, there could be a couple of reasons for that. You know, clearly the, the, the stock has been running into the event Apple announced a whole slew of hardware offerings last week. Um, I think the excitement really kind of um, started gearing up um, once they started doing that. Um, we've seen, you know, kind of to the point that was just alluded to a number of new announcements, whether it be the Apple News Plus for 9.99 a month, the Apple Card, Apple Arcade on the gaming side of things, um, you know, a, a revamp of the Apple TV app, which is now going to kind of be re- re- rebranded and kind of um, thrown across a whole bunch of different platforms, not only on Apple devices. Um, and, you know, now we're, we're starting to hear about the, the Apple TV Plus offering on the services side of things. But, you know, all that being said, you know, it's, you know, I think it's almost a, a sell the news type, type of event. Um, I think, you know, what we haven't heard yes, yet um, from Apple is more clarity on kind of pricing and different bubbling options and what have you. We'll see if we hear that towards the end of this event. Um, but I think there could also be some confusion on, on that side of things. So let's talk about what this is going to cost them to do, what this is going to bring in, you know, in terms of new revenues. Alistair, where are we on this? And I, and I ask, on a day when YouTube came out, or Lucas Shaw out with this story about how YouTube has canceled plans for its um, high-end dramas and comedies, according to those in the know. So, you know, they're kind of pulling back on content, and Apple is, you know, Alistair, really kind of going all the way in. 
So we know they're spending about a billion dollars on original content, either you know creating their own shows or funding existing projects. Um, that's for this year. Um, but when you look at some of the stars that are on 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 the stage right now, Steven Spielberg, etc., um, it looks at the moment like they're going to be spending more on that. And the goal here is to basically Hulu has shown this quite well, which is you probably need one or two real hits that people can't ignore um, and then people will subscribe to your service and then you've kind of got them and then it's it's less likely that they're going to unsubscribe from that Um, so that's the goal for Apple Um, I suspect that um, usually what happens with Apple is they take a while to get into things but then they come in in a big way and they don't usually pull out quite as quickly as, as, as a Google for instance Jason Momoa star of Aquaman <laughs> oh. and Alfred Woodard are now on stage talking about their show C wow yeah this is not cheap w- talent Woa, as Whoa. you would say Woa. so Angelo help us understand from an investor's perspective the breakdown between this new services revenue the hardware revenue we had a good conversation with Mark Gurman last week who was talking about how all of this ultimately does revolve around the iPhone so the, we shouldn't write that off just yet, but how much harder is it going to be for them to break into these very competitive content businesses? I, I mean, I think a, a one plus is you're going to start seeing Apple kind of offer a lot more of these service offering on non-Apple devices um, over time. And I, and I, I think will help, um, you know, definitely kind of sustain that services growth, which we think will continue to be, you know, about 15% to 20% on an annual basis here over the next two to three years. And I I think that should be viewed as positively for a number of investors out there. Um, That's a much higher margin business. Um, You know, we think um, the services business in general um, should be valued about $325 billion today um, with, you know, significant growth potential here over the next couple of years. So, um, you know, as we kind of look at Apple here today, yes, it's more of a hardware-centric business. Um, I think if what Apple has done here over the last week, that kind of putting um, hardware announcements to the side where they typically would have those type of announcements at a spring event, um, I think that in itself is telling you that, hey, listen, we're, we, we want to change the narrative here and the story for Apple towards one that was more you know, hardware-focused and iPhone-focused towards one that's going to be more service-oriented. And listen, that's that stickiness that you're going to get from a number, number of these offerings on the services side will clearly help um, the hardware side of things for years to come. All right, going to leave it on that note. Hey, guys, thank you. Angelo Zeno, he's Senior Equity Analyst over at CFRA Research, on the phone from New York and from our 960 studio in San Francisco. Alistair Barr, he's our technology reporter here at Bloomberg News. So, Carol, one of the, our favorite little corners of Wall Street, I feel like, is the family office space. Ultra high net worth individuals. It's become such a sophisticated piece of the investing yeah. landscape over the last few years. Keith Bloomfield is chief executive officer of the Forbes Family Trust. He joins us on the phone from New York City. So, Keith, bring us the latest. Obviously, we're in a time of increased volatility, questions about where people are putting their money, where they should be uh, putting their money. So take us inside the minds of the very wealthy. Sure. Thanks, Jason. Uh, Thanks, Carol. 
you know, we, we have found um, that there's definitely, a, because of, of market volatility, in addition to many other things, we've found that there is a, a real growing trend for uh, private equity investing for, for ultra-high net worth and family offices. Um, <clears throat> we think the trend is going to certainly continue. Um, over recent years, you know, we've seen some of the most impactful new companies in the global economy remain private for longer. Um, I think Uber, you know, would be a, a prime example. And I would say that, you know, sophisticated investors um, in the private equity community have had a, truly an inside track into being able to invest in these sorts of game-changing opportunities. And, you know, only a few private equity sponsors really command the influence to have a seat at that table. Um, so ultra high net worth and family offices do not need liquidity. Um, and so private equity is really an ideal place for them to, to place a fair amount of their capital. And if you invest in the right private equity managers or companies, um, you will get paid for that illiquidity premium. So we, we, we really see a growing trend there. So private equity, other places in terms of asset classes where you see some growth? Well, I mean, private equity, I, I guess, you, it's, it, you know, it, it, it's an asset class, but, it, but there's many asset classes within private equity. So I, I think um, private equity is the structure mm. that we see a lot of families investing in. And I, I would say that every asset class within private equity, whether it's real estate or, um, you know, manufacturing or, or what have you, um, if you're investing in the right businesses um, and you have access to those opportunities, you're, you're, you're going to do well over the long term. And one of the interesting trends, too, is this notion of how kind of the younger set invests. I feel like they want a little bit more flexibility. Obviously, the more the more wealthy, uh, the wealthier among us want a little more flexibility. They also want a little bit more direction. They want to be able to give a little bit more direction. They want to be a little more active. Is that the sense you get as well? Yeah, I mean, there's there's many trends um, sure. <clears throat> on the investment side for the you know quote unquote younger generation. I mean, what we have seen, and you know, everybody talks about millennials all the time. What do the millennials want? How do they want to invest? Um, we don't believe that the millennials are really going to be this quote unquote next gen or younger generation with capital. You know, we think it's Gen X, which I happen to be a part of. Um, but there are a lot of advisors and family members who have created a lot of wealth in the 70 to 80 year old range and their children in their 40s, which is Gen X, um, are really going to be the recipients of this huge wealth transfer. Um, and so, you know, what we've been focusing on at, at Forbes Family Trust is sort of getting involved with the next gen, the Gen X gen, and figuring out what they're interested in investing in. And what, what we have found is it's not that dissimilar to what the previous generation was interested in investing in. They're interested in hedge funds. They want to understand alternatives. They're interested in private equity. I would say there's a skew towards venture capital. It's not as, um, I would say that the, the older generation viewed venture capital as truly yeah. risk-taking. I think we have seen in the last decade 
venture capital firms really investing in amazing companies creating tremendous wealth. And I'll use Uber as another example again. Um, they, they understand that venture capital is really a way to, um, it's a subset of private equity. It's obviously riskier, but I think that they're focused a little bit more on venture capital. The other, the other thing we've seen is um, Gen X and certainly millennials, they're interested in socially responsible investing, whether it's, you know, green energy or, you know, providing water to a community in, in, a, in a place that, that doesn't really have clean water. They, they want to put their dollars to work. Um, I guess you could call it greedy philanthropy meets impact investing. Right. Um, but they really want to, they want to earn a return, but they'd like to see those dollars go into an area that could benefit how much, how much, so, Keith, of those dollars do they want to see? We talk often here at Bloomberg about the rise of impact investing, ESG, mm-hmm. uh, and the like, and that it's becoming more mainstream, but it is still a small fraction of the money overall that's that's managed out there. So I am curious to see, is it still just kind of a niche type of investment, it, or is it becoming, becoming something much more substantial? I would say both. Um, I think for very ultra high net worth, multiple billion dollar families, it's becoming more substantial because it is a, you know, again, it's it's sort of tongue in cheek, but it's a, the greedy philanthropy aspect of it, they can take large sums of capital, put it into investments that benefit the globe, um, whether green energy is a perfect example and, and, and climate change, and we don't have to get into that debate, but um they they are allocating large amounts of capital to it. I would say the the more normal ultra high net worth individuals, perhaps somebody with a hundred million dollars, which is certainly a lot of money, um, it's more nichey for them, and you know they they're interested in doing it, but it's not going to be a major component of their overall portfolio. Keith Bloomfield, Chief Executive Officer for Forbes Family Trust, joining us from here in New York City. Always good to get a check on where all that money is going, Carol. So Nike featured in the magazine, it's out later this week, this story about how it's putting its best foot forward in Europe, which isn't sitting so well with Adidas. Here to fill us in, Joel Weber, Bloomberg Businessweek editor, along with Dimitri Kessanides, editor of the strategy section of the magazine, both joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. This story also now on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com. Michael Avenatti. I'm not even going to say it. <laughs> you, you have to because we wouldn't be talking about what just happened. So, I mean, we know what we know, but there, that's also uh, obviously clearly put Nike back in the headlines. Uh, yeah, it, right. So we we know Michael Avenatti was arrested, charged by federal prosecutors on both coasts, accused in New York of trying to extort millions of dollars from Nike and in a lay of embezzling money from a client and defrauding a bank. Yep. <laughs> that happened. <laughs> that happened. So Joel yep. set this up. Twenty-two point five million. So before that He's happened, asking. I had yeah. this. In, we had this interest in Nike yeah. to begin with. <laughs> so and tell us why. If, set this if up. If you for kind us. of zoom out a little bit, even more than that, we're in March Madness, right? Nike, yeah, yeah, yeah. one of the biggest names in March Madness, and yet this pivot that Nike's sort of playing with has nothing to do with basketball, other than the fact that Jumpman, the Jumpman brand, is really a legacy of Michael Jordan. And they're putting it in a place like here's the thing about Michael Jordan, right? Like, uh, great basketball player, I would argue, probably the the, the greatest of all time. Go. <laughs> then went and played baseball for a second. 
So we know that that brand and the Michael Jordan brand can transcend other things other than just basketball. And he, he had this foray into baseball. And here's the thing. Now they're putting it in soccer or football for some of our friends. Going across the Atlantic. So that was sort of what it just, you know, the curiosity of, of taking the Jumpman brand and putting it somewhere else that you would never expect it to be is what our initial uh, fascination with it w- w- was. And Demetra, what, what, what grabbed you with this story? You know, it was just that the unlikeliness of that and how well it's doing and how you're seeing, you know, world championship soccer with players like Neymar and Mbappe, and they've got the jump man on their soccer jerseys. And I think they're doing it in Europe and specifically they're doing it in Berlin. They're taking this to Berlin because they're trying to appeal to the soccer fans, to the hipsters in Berlin and Paris, the people who are very fashion conscious. And this is Adidas's home turf, right? right? So it's like, you know, one of our own analysts said it in the story. Ken Grazutis, one of our retail analysts here at Bloomberg, said it's like them taking something with Portland and playing it up and Adidas doing something about how great Portland is. And it would seem kind of weird, but Nike's like doing very well with this. And this is really playing very well with all the people that are really into the athleisure and the casual sort of wear that that they're pushing forward with and if i actually think back about sort of playing multiple sports if you the athleisure thing is absolutely where the growth is going to be with something Mm -hmm. like this but it also speaks to the fact that like in germany basketball is huge too right soccer is football so is basketball. So you've actually created a brand that inherently can cross over between sports. And I think that that actually has, if you take the iconic Jordan Jumpman brand yep. and put it someplace like that, you can be really strategic with a bet like that and see where it goes. So I'm very curious to see what, what other countries they decide to double down on with this. What I love about this story, because we've talked about Nike versus Adidas, Adidas for a while, and I feel like it goes back and forth, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Adidas has a good str- strategy. I, I love that you're both an Adidas person and an Adidas person. <laughs> you can say yeah. We both embrace it all here, Joel. But, <laughs> Very global. But, but We're I, global. But I love that it goes back and forth, you yeah. know? Um, somebody has a good marketing campaign, somebody has a really good product that catches on, and they're in the lead, and we're talking about them, and vice versa. I feel like it goes back and forth. It Even does. though Nike... Is right a much larger company? It, indeed, Huge. yeah. And I think that you know, and they're gaining, they're gaining market share in Europe, Middle East, Africa. But it speaks to some degree to to the trends, right, and yeah. to the influencers who are driving those trends. Because just two years ago, we were talking about this Adidas resurgence with the Stan Smiths and all of that. Yeah. So it it can be so fickle in a way, but um, it is quite interesting. And Nike, though, really seems to be doing something that is working and playing with a lot of people really well right now. Um, very quickly, I have a little interesting tidbit, though. The Supreme Court today declined to hear a lawsuit that was brought by the photographer who shot that photo of Michael Jordan, right, mm. that became yeah. the logo. And this has been a lawsuit. This is just a little trivia for yeah. our listeners, but yeah. it's a lawsuit if I was that's been around that, for a while. They I would be in a created a logo too. that was inspired by his photo but he has for many years now been claiming copyright infringement and the case did go and they they decided they are not going to hear the case so he's actually lost most of the lower court rulings but it's a funny little addition to the whole nike storyline today with the with the Jumpman logo so i just thought i'd throw that out there that's not as funny as the avenani stuff but you know (laughs) (laughs) i don't even know how to make sense out of this this is not why nike is not 
I'm sure psyched to be in the headlines for this. Uh, no, no, I think it's like your nightmare. I mean, yeah. but I, the quote I thought was amazing, which was like, "I'm going to come for you, and I'll get twenty percent of your market cap or whatever." It was right. Like, oh, man. And Nike's like, "Who is yeah, this? Uh, I think there's somebody that we can call because yeah. that sounds like extortion." FBI. <laughs> Uh, really kind of crazy. Um, fun story in the magazine this week. It's on the Bloomberg, and you can find it at Bloomberg.com. Guys, Nike thank you so much. Nike puts its best foot forward in Europe where Adidas or Adidas Did you see Nike stumbled. sponsored a documentary I did. Also? About Berlin. About Berlin. Berlin's yeah. vibrant life, yeah. nightlife. Something Jason was yeah, partaking in very just much a few a weeks part ago. Of, but that was, you were on assignment yeah. for yeah. us. Yeah, so, exactly. yeah, Joel, assignment. Yeah. Hipster assignment. <laughs> I've That's heard about me. those assignments. Joel Weber Berlin. is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us this time every day for a sneak peek look in depth in the magazine. Demetri Kessinides is editor of so many things at Bloomberg Business Week. Thank you both. <laughs> I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. On this Monday, Brad McMillan is Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network. $156 billion in assets under management. Uh, Brad, back with us uh, on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts. Brad, nice to have you here. Very different feel to today's environment. And I feel like... You know, in terms of the inverted yield curve that kind of everybody obsessed about on Friday, perhaps rightfully so, we're all taking a step back and just kind of calming down and waiting to see where this lands. How do you see it? I think you're exactly right. Um, Certainly when the yield curve inverts, that's something to worry about. But the reality is, first of all, it's, you know, it has to last for a while. Second of all, even when it happens, it typically means we've got six to 18 months, maybe more. So are we going to die? Yeah, but it's not a heart attack yet. Wow. Well, that's a really and upbeat a happy outlook, Monday to Brad. you, Brad. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, hmm. Death and taxes. Next. Next. Uh, so what do you worry about the most in the short term then? I think the real problem here is consumer confidence. I mean, when you go back, the thing, the thing that really looked like, you know, chest pains really was the government shutdown. And I think that's really what led to a lot of the weakness we're having right now. But the thing when you go back and look at it, the way that worked is it really hit confidence and confidence hits spending and confidence hits everything else. So we've seen confidence bounce back in a very big way. But this is the kind of thing, if it gets out in the narrative, that could tank confidence and that could become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, that's interesting, too, because I also think about you know, what makes Americans feel good? And for the majority of Americans is if they own a home and their house is appreciating, right? That's their bigger, biggest asset. Um, also, do they have a job? And do they feel confident about that job going forward? And that's what ultimately will send Americans out to spend money. On those two fronts, are we doing okay? Because consumer confidence, I know we get a reading on it this week, poised for another month of gains uh, in March. And we know labor market conditions still remain strong. So I'm just curious um, how you see those specific metrics. That's exactly right. You know, because the fact of the matter is, you know, over 70% of the economy is consumer spending. 
Well, you get the money through your job, so jobs matter. And But even if you have a job, even if you're making more money, if you don't feel good, you're not going to spell it. You're not going to spend it. So those are the two things that really matter. And as you say, people are working. Wage growth is actually going up, and people feel good. They're willing to spend it. So we saw a pullback in spending, but we're likely to see a growth there. You know, when you look at housing, we're seeing housing become more affordable. And that's also a key point, as you say. So we've got some good things going on, and I think that's going to be positive going forward. How are you feeling about the Fed these days? Well, the Fed, the, 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 the Fed put is back in play, and I think that's got to help markets. You know, Jay Powell came out late last year and said to the markets, drop dead. And then he came back just now and said, oh, just kidding, we've got your back. So that's another, that's another tailwind. When interest rates go down, yes, it's because the Fed is getting nervous, but it's also going to support markets. And the thing you have to remember here is look at the Fed. The Fed has said they're going to be data-dependent. Well, guess what? The data weekend, they step back. That's exactly what they've been saying they're going to do. I don't think this necessarily means the Fed is panicking. I think this means that actually Jay Powell is being data dependent. He's not just talking it, he's walking it. So, Brad, so in this environment, what's your advice to investors uh, at this point if they've got some new money to invest in the market? How do you play it? At this point, I think it makes sense to be in. You know, if you're nervous about it, obviously. In the equity markets? In the equity markets, yes. I think at this point, if you're not comfortable with the risk, it's a good it's a good opportunity to look at the end of last year and say, okay, am I taking too much risk that I'm not comfortable with? But if you're comfortable with the risk you're taking, there's no reason to panic. There's no reason to stay out. Generally speaking, as long as we don't get a recession, and that's likely a year or more away, markets tend to go up. And, you know, we don't see sustained pullbacks. So I think right now the trend is still upwards. And the current PE you're you're comfortable with uh, about eighteen and a half uh, times earnings. Well, if you look at the forward PE, we're we're right about sixteen, which is about average where we are right now, where we've been over the past five years or so. You know, you can say we're pricey based on prior history, and that's true. But if you look at recent history, we're we're still pretty much close to average. So there's still some room on the upside and. You know, unless something changes, unless rates go back up, the current valuation range is likely to hold. And so uh, housing, real estate, those issues, I feel like we're talking more about them now than maybe we were for the last couple of years. How do you read that? Is it a place you invest? Is it a place you avoid? Or is it telling us something that would dictate how you deploy money otherwise? Well, I think there, there's, two, there's two different discussions there. When you look at commercial real estate, that's, that largely plays off interest rates. So if you look at interest rates going down, which given the Fed's current stance is the, is the best bet, I think there, you've got a real tailwind there for real estate valuations. But at the same time, it's positioned as a sector to participate in continued growth, which we're also likely to see. So I don't see a lot of you know, I, I see that as an area of a lot of opportunity going forward. As far as housing goes, I mean, we have seen a pullback, but that data seems to be firming. You know, we saw affordability pull back significantly, but now mortgage rates are coming down in a meaningful way. Wage growth is picking up. We don't need to see housing come gangbusters. We just need to see it, it do better than people are expecting, and I think that's about to happen.
Yeah, and it's fascinating. If you take a look uh, on the equity side of things, the S&P 500 uh, super composite home uh, housing or home building, I should say, sub-industry index, it's roughly up about 19% this year. So we've seen quite a bounce back in some of those um, housing names. Brad, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Brad McMillan, he's Chief Investment Officer, Commonwealth Financial Network, $156 billion in assets under management, joining us from Waltham, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.